You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, friends, welcome back. Season six, we're going to just get going here. I think almost everybody here knows that uh, the MLA podcast is proud to be part of the Missio Alliance network. And I, I think my favorite thing about Missio Alliance, for those who are not familiar, is it's such a great learning environment. And that lends me to my guest today, Dr. Alvin Sanders. Uh, Dr. Sanders is a pastor. He has a PhD in education. He's the president and CEO of World Impact. He's written a couple of books. His most recent one is just right up my alley. It's Uncommon Church, Community Transformation for the Common Good. And so Dr. Sanders in this book, he uh, talks about liberation theology and also spiritual, uh, spirituality of liberation. He is very familiar, of course, with the CCDA, I think probably the finest organization on community development uh, founded by the great uh, Dr. John Perkins. I- I'm particularly interested in talking to Alvin because I'm a white suburban pastor. And as much as in our church context, we have done a lot of work in systemic poverty. Uh, we've done a lot of work in affordable housing. In fact, our church is probably one of the leading voices in our city on getting affordable housing going on our own property. At the end of the day, I'm still white. I'm still suburban. I'm still a person of privilege. And so just a, an absolute honor to be able to chat with Dr. Sanders, who's not just a, a theorician, but he's a practitioner. He has sweat in the trenches. Um, as a church pastor, he's also uh, had a lot of leadership in his denomination, of course, uh, now uh, working with World Impact. So uh, Alvin Sanders, welcome to the MLA show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we're going to get into a good bit about on the book. I, I've read the book. I, I loved it. What a great overview on how uh, the urban church really can make a difference and how all of us, whether we're urban or not, can get involved. Before we dig into the book, just tell us about World Impact for those who are unfamiliar with it. What do you guys do? Yeah. So World Impact uh, works towards solving the problem that there's 95% of the world's pastors and church leaders have no formal theological training or ministry training whatsoever. And so what we do is we provide affordable, accessible, and effective ministry training for those pastors because the majority of them are, are focused and working in communities of poverty around the world. Now, we have a particular focus within um, large urban areas within the United States, because we know that when we train pastors in, say, like Dallas, that that training is automatically going to go go to South America, Central America. That's essentially what we're about. We This year, we're celebrating 50 years. Mm. How long have you been the president there? I've been the president since 2017. Okay. So uh, it's not getting to your book yet, but I'm always interested in leadership transition because it can be such a challenge. Mm -hmm. What was transition like for you? And what did you see that was your unique contribution that World Impact needed? Yeah. So when I took over the presidency of World Impact, um, we were sort of in what I would call a, a, a missional identity crisis because um, as organizations that have been around for a long time, They've been we sort of trying to figure out we've been different iterations along different decades. Like, for instance, it started in 1971 as a kids Bible club in the inner city of, of Los Angeles. And then over the years, it's we've had a holistic ministry types of things in terms of schools and campgrounds. I mean, did you just name it? And so when I came in 2017, um, I felt like um, we needed to go on a journey of trying to figure out. What does God want us to be in the next 50 years? And so my job was to sort of lead the process, revisiting our mission and vision and things of that nature and, co- and, and help us to come up with that answer by January of 2021. So God led us on a great journey and we felt like we needed to put all of our resources in solving that problem of training pastors around uh, the world in communities of poverty. Now, Alvin, um, before we get to the book, I'm also just fascinated because you had spent years as a pastor and an urban mm-hmm. pastor there in, you know, the over the Rhine Clifton area, right? Um, yeah, in Cincinnati. 
Yeah, yeah. I've got some friends, uh, Troy Jackson and and Mandy mm-hmm. Smith, both who put yep. quite a bit of time there. Yeah, I'm, I'm very good friends with Troy Jackson. Yeah, Troy's quite a guy. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what were some of the unique pressures you faced as a pastor? Well, when you're pastoring in a, a under-resourced community, you're typically dealing with a population that have seen the worst of everything when it comes to institutions. They they have the worst school systems. You know, if there's people's trash that isn't picked up, it's going to be theirs. If there's snow to be removed, uh, they're the last neighborhood to get it. And And really, it adds an extra layer of really trying to bring dignity to them. And really, you know, some of the best examples of faith that I've ever seen are from when I've served as pastor of people within that community because life had dealt such a harsh blow to them, but they still had a, a saving faith. They still had a strong belief in God. And I really learned a lot myself. And the connective tissue between me pastoring in a community like that and what I do now with World Impact is, you know, our theory of change at World Impact is that we believe in the poor to be able to own and lead their own ministry. Because most people, when they look at folk in poverty, look at them as charity cases. Right. But we do not. We say, no, they have the same giftings and talents and abilities that God's given every social class. And so we try to fan and flame that gift of God amongst them. And really, that wasn't too different from what I was doing when I was pastoring in in inner city Cincinnati. Right. Really trying to empower folk. Um, We utilize a philosophy called asset-based community development. Yeah. Um, which has an institute out of uh, DePaul University. And we really look at the assets of the people and the assets of the community. And instead of saying the glass is half empty, we say, no, the glass is half full. How can we raise the water level within the glass? So that sort of the, was the sort of the, the philosophical bent of, of the church that I planted and pastored. Yeah, I, I love that you brought up ABCD because it it does get to the heart of what you're writing about in Uncommon Church. You, you're you're making a strong case that as long as you see somebody in need as a project for you to fix, you're you're damaging. Mm-hmm. But that everybody has inherent dignity from God, not only dignity, but there's tremendous ability for reciprocity. You even just said yourself, like what you learn from the people you are leading. And asset-based community development really gets to the heart of that, where its first question is, what do these people have, right? And then mm-hmm. I think after that, if I recall, it, it moves on to now, what are the obstacles? Not what's the deficit so much, but what are the obstacles blocking them from being able to thrive? Yeah, the whole philosophy is about focusing on the assets because each and every one of us has assets and liabilities. None of us are a success because of our liabilities. We're a success because our assets overcome our liabilities. That's why we're a success. So we focus on the strengths. And by you focusing on your strengths, you engage the challenges that, that your life or your neighborhood, for that matter, may have. And you, you learn to overcome them. Yeah. One of my favorite things in the book, Alvin, was uh, you confessing to us that you're Generation X. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I think what I enjoyed about it is when you, you made a little joke about being, look, you know, you're like the middle child, right? You No one ever pays attention. Mm-hmm. I too am a Gen Xer, and uh, man, we we are a yes, we are a persecuted minority. But you framed it in the idea that that the Boomer generation really focused on good theology and you know personal holiness, and then the Millennial generation are all about activism. Yep. There you are standing in the middle of those two, trying to integrate them into a holistic gospel. I'd love to hear you share more about that. Yeah, that's actually was a lot of the the. The gener- the I would say the um, the genesis of the book, because you know I I joke I'm 50 years old and I joke that I'm at the beginning of being old. Okay, so I'm not old yet, but I'm rapidly headed there. So I've been in ministry for 30 years. So I've I've seen a I've seen enough right to be able to think I could commentate on things. And and when I first entered ministry uh, and doing ministry in communities of poverty, you know everybody's theological eyes and T's were crossed. Hardly no one would argue with you about a theology of the poor, so to speak. The issue was to get people to actually take those scriptures and that mindset and do something with it. Because they people would think, if I've had a great Bible study on, on poverty, I've done something. And it's like, no, you actually have to go and get involved in the lives and the hearts of the people in the community. Well, I think the whole thing is flipped on its head. 
everybody is out there doing something. I mean, even in the secular, the quote unquote secular realm, well, I don't really like that term, but um, just for being able to name things, you know, my, my daughter who, you know, went through a public high school, she had to have community service hours yeah. to graduate. Yeah. Right. And my youngest daughter went to a Catholic high school and of course she had to have service hours. So, so everybody is out there wanting to make a difference in all about activism, but the, you know, an advocacy, but you know, my opening chapter is advocacy is not enough. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you name the name of Jesus, you, you want to be a redemptive poverty worker. You want to be someone who's bringing redemption, not just ethical things and things of that nature. Um, we want to bring actual redemption to the systems in the community, as well as to the personal lives of the people there. I mean, evangelism and justice go hand in hand. They're not two things that are op- you know, diametrically opposed to one another. They're two sides of the same coin. So I think there's a, a necessary corrective that that's, needs to be out there in terms of folk being able to theologically engage things. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but you know, the latest Christian boogeyman, because there's always a boogeyman every five, 10 years, is critical race theory. Now, I'm enough to remember when psychology was a boogeyman. Like when I was going to Bible college, right? Everybody, oh, you can't, you know, psychology is, is horrible, you know? And now I don't even think anybody argues that anymore. But the latest boogeyman for the quote unquote secular world is critical race theory. And, you know, I've studied critical race theory. You know, when I did my PhD studies, I understand it. Those, this, that, the other, it's just a tool of looking at the world. Yeah. But you don't need it. <laughs> to engage issues of poverty and race, if you're a good theologian, you're an excellent critical race theorist, which may cause some people to to go, oh my God, but whatever, right? I mean, the, the, the Bible is very clear that we live in a fallen world. Genesis 3 is very clear about that, that everything is fallen. The institutions, the systems, the people, everything is fallen. And until Jesus comes back to restore it, it's going to be fallen. And it's it's up to the people of God to enter into these broken situations and to try to bring some redemption to it. And so racially, critical race theory is just basically showing you the brokenness. But you don't need it if you're a Christian. You really don't. It's Matthew 22, 37 through 40. It's the judging of Sodom and Gomorrah, which everybody wants to say, oh, well, I have to do with homosexuality. But really, if you if you look at the scriptures, it talks much deeper about that. It says, no, it really has to do with how we treated the poor and how we treated people and how this how how they were treated is why God judged that. Sin. Yeah, hospitality. Yeah. I mean, you could go all throughout the Old Testament. Look at Daniel. Daniel's sub- serving in, in public service and, and Esther is serving in public service. This, that, the other. And why are they serving in public service to be God's representatives? to engage the brokenness of the places that they lived around them. And that's what we should be about. The people of God have always been about that. They've always been about um, engaging people on a personal level for individual salvation and also engaging the systems around them to make them a better place, the common good. Yeah, there's a lot you just said there. What I'm hearing from you is three different themes I'd love to explore. So I'm going to try to keep them straight in my head. But the first one is critical race theory. I the first time I ever heard that phrase was just a few months ago. I, I had a congregant call me. I'd made some comment about my privilege, which is a common... I've been making these comments for the 15 years I've been a preacher at this church. But now because of this past summer, some people were hearing things for the first time, if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. so I had... And he called me and he, uh, in a very accusatory way, he talked about how I was succumbing to critical race theory. <laughs> and I said... I. What is it? I've never even heard what of it. What are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I kept trying to say, look, um, all I can tell you is that when I was in seminary, I was exposed to systemic poverty from non-white professors. I had professors who were not white. I, I remember in one particular class, the professor very famously said to us, I tell you what you guys don't need. You don't need another theology book written by a white guy. <laughs> and he took us on a journey. We started in Latin America with the Boff brothers and Gutierrez. Yes, and yes. And then we based communities. To, I'm very familiar with that. Sure. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm sure you are. Yeah. And, and James Cohn, we popped over to Korea and then uh, Native American theology. And then I ended with Aboriginal theology because I'm an Australian. 
and uh, just just being pummeled over the head as a white suburban guy with the very self-evident truth that Scripture talks about systems and structures yep. and, and systemic racism, not simply individual racists, and how if you're benefiting from a system, you are part of a racist situation. Uh, and it, I, I still don't... I, I'll be honest, Alvin, I still don't actually know what CRT is. I just have been disturbed at how many people hear theological preaching through a dismissive lens like that. I'd love to hear more of what you'd like to say about that. And then I want to chase these other two themes you brought up. Yeah, well, I mean, CRT is just, it's just, it's something that, I mean, it's, 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 it's like sociology. It's like, I mean, it's, it's just something that you study. It, I, I believe if I remember correctly, because it's been a while since I studied it, but um, I think it, it emerged out of the law field and it's matriculated its way through the academy. And it's just like any other sociological type theory that's out there. But it's not this boogeyman. It just isn't. And in my personal opinion, the only reason that has been brought up within the Christian community is to try to suppress the church's implicit participation in racism. It's just, a, it's, it's a, it's just another way of trying to get out of, well, we don't need to talk about race because it's unbiblical. And it's just crazy. It's just ridiculous. It's really part of this whole white nationalism that's infiltrated the Christian church with the uh, latest political developments with, with Trump and things of that nature. Regardless of politics, clearly there is white nationalism that is prevalent in a way that it hasn't been prevalent in a long, long time. And it has clearly infiltrated the church. Those two things, in my mind, are clear. And so, you know, addressing or saying something against critical race theory is just a way of sort of, well, I don't really want to deal with the white nationalism that's within, you know, the Southern Baptist denomination or church that's at the other. So I'll just say, well, that's unbiblical. And if you were to talk to me, I'd say, that's fine. Throw it out. Let's talk. The th- let's, let's talk, talk the theology. Yeah. Let's talk the Bible. Let's talk about what the people of God. Let's talk about what was talked about when, when Peter got his vision in Acts, right? And he told Jesus, think about this. He told Jesus, no, I'm going to stay Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> a paraphrase, right? No, yeah. all that crazy stuff you're saying, ah, I'm going to stay Jewish. Well, that's an that's a ethnocentric notion. Yeah. You know? Clearly, we could take principles out of what Jesus told Peter and say, oh, well, let's extrapolate that and let's put it on the lens of, of race and what's happening now. I mean, I, we, I mean, so critical race theory is just, okay, whatever. Throw it out. Let's talk. Let's talk theology and how we practically apply it to our lives. Alvin, I, I, it's probably worth noting, you know, this episode is going to be released mid-February, but we're recording it the day after the Capitol was overrun with overt racist uh, terrorists. And so obviously we're both pretty spun up from what happened yesterday. And when the episode comes out, we actually, you and I don't actually know what happened between yesterday and when this episode comes out. What, What strikes me and what I would love to hear from you on when President Trump was elected and then when Charlottesville happened, as an immigrant, I was really surprised. And what has humbled me is when I talked to my black sisters and brothers, they, of course, were not surprised, which continues to show me that regardless of my early 1990s exposure to this and my own journey and my own dealing with my own racial tendencies and white privilege, I I still, at the end of the day, benefit from privilege because I have the privilege of not having to look into it. And it seems to me that until it costs those of us how can I word this clearly? If it doesn't cost us, we don't care about it. Mm-hmm. And and the I think the beauty of the gospel is that it actually gives us an opportunity to care about something that doesn't that doesn't affect us. Right? That to me, that is the gospel. Right? Is is Jesus actually invites me to care about or give a damn about something that doesn't really bother me or doesn't personally affect me? I'd love to hear from you as a black man what you think I, as a white suburban faith leader, should be doing or saying to help address systemic racism? The only thing that works, in my opinion, 
in understanding systemic racism, because there's essentially a journey that everyone, not just white folk, everyone has to go on if we name the name of Jesus Christ and we truly want to make a difference in this area. And that is a journey of you have to renew your mind. You know, you have to have a proper mindset on how to view these things, which leads to behaviors and goals. Right. And so the the problem is it all starts in our mindsets because our mindsets are developed through our life experiences and the relationships that we have with the institutions. It is very hard for the typical suburban upper middle class person to see race because of the fact that they have not had to from their life experience and or from their engagements of institutions. So when you if you if you live in a situation or say you've never experienced cops behaving badly and your entire life, you know, you've you've been in an enclave of just other white folk. When somebody comes and they tell you that your world is different, that's pretty jarring. Yeah. And the reality is you don't have to leave that world unless you decide like yourself, you said, to go on the journey yourself. So so. I guarantee you in that seminary class, when you had the professor saying those things to you, probably about a third of you went on the journey that you went on, probably, but 66% probably were like, whatever, that's this class, I'll say whatever I need to go and I'm going off to my own little world, right? If we truly believe and understand the death of Genesis 3 and the fallenness of, of mankind and sin, if that's a true theological premise that we hold, and then if we truly believe the history of the United States, where race has always been a factor. It's always been there. Yeah. I mean, you go back to the, you know, the grandfather of sociologist, Alex de Tocqueville. He talks about race and its function in America. It's always been a factor. You can't hold to those that true premise of historical distrust amongst the races. You know, then you can't really understand and grasp Genesis 3 theologically, and you can't really understand and grasp the depth of historical distrust amongst the races, and you will never be able to develop the proper mindset to produce the types of behaviors that will help us reach our goal of, of racial reconciliation, not only individually, but within engaging the injustice of the institutions of this society. Yeah. It's been interesting for me on my own journey as a lead pastor in a suburban church and us trying to figure out you know, how do we how do we not have to learn the lessons of moving beyond charity? How do we begin with solidarity? How do we begin with what I think reciprocity? I, I think that you know, the Old Testament law in Exodus and Leviticus that it, it tucked in all the mold laws and what to do if you break your neighbor's donkey's leg and that. <laughs> There's these incredible laws about how the rich and poor ought to relate to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, the rich ought not charge interest to the poor, whereas in our culture the poor pay the highest interest. And um, if if you've borrowed a if you've taken a poor person's coat as collateral, you have to find them and give it back to them by sunset. Otherwise, if they die of cold, their blood's on your shoulders. Like all the, it, it's almost like the vision that God had. It, it's almost like God saying, "Look, it's okay that there's rich and poor, but they must be in close relationship with each other. Like you have to, and then there has to be a genuine reciprocity." I think as a church, we would we would on that path locally and globally. And then things got really interesting when we moved into policy. Uh, in our case, affordable housing. Our city uh, became, it was is the youngest county in our state. And when we became a county about 20 years ago, uh, so many of the social services left. The, the various counties that were part of our city became separate. We became our own county. And so we had zero affordable housing. We do not have a housing authority, for example. And it was the churches that began having these conversations with our city leaders saying, listen, we shouldn't be exporting our poor when they need help. Like, is that the kind of city we want to be? That's, it's, it was at that junction where I first really started to run into the most opposition. As long as we were talking about reciprocity and working in the rescue mission and sitting down as brothers and sisters rather than us having the ladle and the people in need being in line, people are fine with that. But when we started saying, okay, our church is going to give land for affordable housing, we're going to partner with an affordable housing builder, and we're going to advocate for policy, suddenly we got accused of being political. What's your experience with that? Well, I mean, 
first is kudos for what you, your church is trying to do because that's that's beyond the pale of most churches. So I applaud it's, you for that. It's been brutal. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it, it goes back to what we're saying in terms of the mindset that you have. Um, you know, if, if the mindset is one of, you know, individualistic racial reconciliation types of things, then that's just a very, very narrow lens. And what you've tried to do is you've tried to expand people's horizons saying, no, this is about the common good of the city of Knoxville. That's where you're saying you're at, right? This is about uh, the common good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, um, no problem. You, you know, we're, that's what we're about. Um, we're about the common good. And for most white evangelicals, they have never thought theologically in those terms. They have never been challenged and they have never thought about or outside of my own individualistic, personal holiness type of situation. They've never thought that I actually, the Bible actually says I have a responsibility for the poor in the community. It's very clear that it is God's people who are to play a role in the quality of life of the poor in the community. Now, we don't have the resources to uh, take care of all the poor in the community, but we should be taking care of some and we should be advocating for policies that are going to affect their lives. And that's a real responsibility. I mean, I don't know how you read Matthew 25 and the story of the sheep and the goats where Jesus clearly says part of our judgments is going to be how we took care of those who did not have physically, not spiritual poverty. No, folk who were thirsty, folk who were hungry. How did you respond? That will be one of the questions on Judgment Day. I think people don't really understand that. It's right there. It's clear. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't do anything. Jesus clearly says that. Um, He tells the story of the sheep and the goats. And I, I think that it is just a, a hole in our, um, in our theology, which is what I've talked about, you know, the genesis of my book, is to try to say, look, you've got to understand what the Bible has to say about those in poverty, and then you have to apply it not only on a personal level, but on an institutional level. So to me, it's, it's all about what is your theological foundations? I mean, one of the things that I, that I was shocked in my years of pastoring was just how little people actually knew what the Bible said. Yeah. Right. There, yeah. And I'm talking about Christians. I'm not talking about folk outside of Christians know a lot about the Bible. Yeah. But when you start talking about what it actually says, there's a lot of teaching that has to go into it because people just, they just don't know. I, I would say a lot of Christians, this is a blanket statement, so this may be unfair. I think a lot of Christians know a lot about a little bit of the Bible. I think that's what it is. <laughs> we know Philippians, we know the, some of the Psalms, but then when we do get into the vision of the people of God when they were nomadic, mm-hmm. the book of Acts, like, you, you know, when you mentioned Cornelius, like even Paul, his radical inclusiveness was pretty crazy when you look at uh, the status of people in the Roman Empire and then the status they got when they became a Christian in a local church. I, I find it fascinating in your book, Alvin, you, you know, people ask you, what, what does a poor neighborhood need the most? And they list these various excellent social things. And your answer is they need a healthy local church. Yep. Because we're talking about redemption. We're talking about redeeming the people and redeeming the neighborhood. And the local church is the place for both. It is the place where people come and they do life together when it's healthy and you're empowering one another. There's no better empowering tool than discipleship. To work with someone day in, day out, year in, year out, be fellow brothers and sisters walking alongside one another and helping each other live personal lives of personal holiness. I mean, there's nothing better in terms of an empowering tool. And in the church itself, is an institution within the community yeah, that has leverage, that has connective tissue, and it should be raising its voice to help the community be a better place. Okay. Pastors so, um, should be part of their chambers of commerce. So, you know, I'll, yeah. stop. I'll start preaching here. So I'm going to. No, this, I think this is so good. I mean, we're <laughs> way off my list of questions, but I'm, I'm loving it. <laughs> but I do think we need to hear from you on a couple of things. So let's take, 
a pastor who's moving into a new church context. And let's also take maybe the second group of be a pastor who's listening to this now saying, okay, what if I start thinking about the common good of my city? What is their first step? Who do they go meet with and listen to to understand the needs? Like surely this is one of the ongoing sins of the well-meaning church is we tell people what they need rather than asking. So who should they go ask so they can learn about the needs in their city? I would say before they go do anything, they need to they need to buy the book Asset-Based Community Development. Okay. And they need to study it and they need to do everything it says <laughs> because that will be their roadmap into the engaging their community. That'll be their posture too. And that'll be their posture. That'll be their roadmap. That'll be their everything. If you just read and study the principles from that, uh, from that perspective, it will, and you do what it says, it will naturally put you into the situations that a church pastor needs to be in, in terms of engaging the common good. Go in as a humble learner and assume you have no answers. Now, you might actually have some, but go in as a blank slate and say, I don't have any answers to this. I'm going to get this book. I'm going to get the Asset-Based Community Development Handbook. I'm going to take my leaders through it. We're going to do everything it says. And you're going to naturally find yourself working for the common good of your neighborhood. Okay. Yeah, my mind went... Oh, okay. That's what I wanted to say too, Alvin, is when you're the lead pastor, which you and I have both been, I, I still serve as a lead pastor. You had the incredible privilege. Like lead pastoring comes with a lot of downside. I don't mind saying <laughs> it's, it's, it can be brutal, but you have the incredible privilege of being able to help shape the culture of your congregation. And so I, I would also add to that, that you can budget for this and you can put it on your calendar. So I, I'm just going to testify for a minute, Alvin, like I've had interns come and work for me and I've had to train my interns how to sit through boring government meetings. It's a skill. It's a skill that everyone has to have. <laughs> I do show up to a boring government meeting where people are using a lot of acronyms and a lot of language, you know, like maybe mm -hmm. the local social workers getting together. But if you show up as a pastor to people who are on the front line, social workers, uh, school principals, and some police, depending on the police force, they already feel a lot of pressure. And you can simply ask them, what could our church do to relieve some pressure? And they, they already know. Mm -hmm. And rather than you acting first and starting something, simply listening to the people who are there before you got there and then giving them some relief, it's amazing how quickly you'll turn key leaders in your city into huge fans because you're just helping them out. In yeah, I mean, you just basically spout at the philosophy of asset-based community ABC, development. Yeah, ABCD. I, I, mean, that's, I mean, that's basically what you do, right? You, you go in, you, you map out the community, you say, how can I help? How can I be the church? How can I help? Who doesn't want help? Who's going to tell you, no, I don't want any help? Yeah. Very few people, especially people who lead institutions like yeah. schools and police departments and places and things of that nature. Yeah. Who, who, in my experience, genuinely love their city and genuinely love the people they're serving. Like I've, Absolutely. I've found an overwhelming amount of people of goodwill in those areas. And it leads me to another topic you address in the book. I, I think it's essential. You talk about the natural impatience of many Christians because they want to see change and results. They want to go and serve and then they want to see people's lives improved. And you yeah. really call out the inherent selfishness of that. You know, that mm -hmm. it's because we need to see progress and we need to see improvement. And then when that doesn't happen, the very common next move of them blaming the person in poverty, like, well, what choices have they made and so on. Uh, talk to us about your thoughts on that. Yeah, most of us start off when you're engaged in what I would call re redemptive poverty work or trying to go on that journey. Most of us start off as being very exploitative. We don't even know it. Most of us don't know it, but we're, we're down there for our own selfish interest. And no, I've never met anybody who says I'm going down to the community to exploit people. Never. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody says that. But what happens is when you hit adversity, what do you do? Do you blame the people for the adversity? Do you bail on the neighborhood and the community? Or do you grow and you learn from it? Right? Do you really understand what's happening and what's going on? I don't think I, I well, I didn't. I didn't tell this story in the book, but I remember having a poverty one-on-one workshop with a guy and and he was talking about this extensive ministry that he ran in it in his uh community, and it was a uh 
it was a food and clothing pantry, right? And people would come in there and they'd be drunk or they'd be high. Not everybody, but some people would come in there drunk or high. And he was getting so upset about it that he said, you know what? Um, he, he, he bought a, I'm not sure how he did this, but he basically had people take urine tests to see if they were, you know, sober. And if the test came in clean, then they would get the food and the clothing. And then if the, the test came in dirty, they wouldn't. And I told him, that's extremely selfish of you. And he, and he looked at me, he said, oh, no, I'm trying to keep these people, you know, sober. I said, okay, let me test you on that. If it comes back dirty, what are you doing to help them get off of whatever it is they're on? What's next? What are you doing to help them gain their sobriety? Obviously, they can't gain it. <laughs> if they're coming into your pantry, high as the sky, and yet they still have families to feed and this, that, the other, and they're looking for you to help, you're punishing them for their dysfunction. So what are you doing to help them get out of the dysfunction? Because that's what's redemptive. Yeah. What's redemptive is, oh, man, Johnny, you're in here. You're you tested dirty again. Well, let me let me get you connected to such and such. This, that, the other. Not just we're not going to give you the food. I said, did the, did the kids could stop being hungry? Did the needs go away? Why are you really doing this? And the reason they were really doing this is because he was taking it personal that people were coming in to his, right, his food pantry and disrespecting the process. That's highly exploitative. You're trying to control them. You're treating them like they're little kids. I've never met someone who's an addict who wanted to be one ever if you get to know them it they're trying to to do something to numb the pain of their lives of some trauma that they've encountered and they obviously don't know what to do with it and so they're trying to drink and smoke and shoot shoot whatever their lives away it's a deep hurt that's a deep pain and it's like, and, and, and to make matters worse by not feeding them or their kids or giving them clothes or this, that, the other, you're, you're exploiting them. Because if they manage to clean themselves up on their own or this, that, the other, guess what? You're going to put them in your newsletter and raise money off of them, right? So most folks, that's where you start and that's where you're at. And can you develop a mindset? Can you really, what it is, Steve, is can you spiritually mature to the point where you recognize your self-awareness and you go, okay, this is not good. This is not cool. This is not how I should be, be acting towards this folk. And then you evolve to a better state of um, what I would call ethical poverty work. And in ethical poverty work, that's when it goes beyond you. When you say, you know what? Um, I actually care about the people in this neighborhood. I care about this community more than I care about um, me being personally offended. I understand that I'm going to be taking advantage of this at the other, but I'm here to try to get this place to be a better place for these people to live better lives. But even ethical is not enough because um, if you're not in it for redemptive purposes, eventually you will burn out and you will get weary and well-doing just being in the ethical space. Because folk who who don't have a foundation of the scriptures, you quickly realize the institutions that you engage, a lot of the people who are in those institutions, they will be for you when it comes to doing things for those who are in poverty. But like you stated earlier, when something becomes uncomfortable, well, they're not on your team anymore. Yeah. You know, whether it's a mayor or a governor or is that the other day, politicians do what's politically expedient. Imagine that, right? So... <laughs> You know, whatever the institutions around you, they don't have directives. We're the only people in the world who have directives to take care of those in poverty and to trying to bring redemption to them and trying to bring redemption to that neighborhood. They don't. They're there for they may have a good humanistic heart or this at the other, but eventually ethical folk, folk burn out. That's why you see a lot of Christians. They never make the switch from ethical to redemption and they get really, really burned out, and then they also, unfortunately, leave the faith. There's a lot who leave the faith because they get upset at the church and they get upset at all the things that are going on around them. And, and so then they say, oh, well, you know, what these scriptures say, you know, they're not really true. And, 
you know, and and I have to use critical race theory and Marx and this, that, the other, because I, the scriptures have to be supplemented, you know, which is ridiculous. Scriptures never have to be supplemented if you really understand what's going on. The other things should inform your theology, not the other way around. I mean, I, one, of the, one, of the, one of the saddest things I've seen over the years in, in doing redemptive poverty work is a lot of my colleagues have left the faith mm-hmm. because they never made that switch from an ethical mindset to a redemptive mindset. They, they've literally just, you know, this Christian stuff, this church stuff, that there's got to be something else. This, this doesn't really work. And it's because their faith was too narrow and their theology wasn't deep enough to handle the pain that went into doing this work. Really, that's what it is. Surely it's also because they're not seeing enough churches making the switch that you're telling us has to be made. Like yeah. that's, that, there's also a heavy sense of discouragement. Like I've also had that same situation, people leaving either our church or the church, so discouraged. You mentioned in passing the Southern Baptist. I'm, I'm not in the habit of talking about people that aren't my people, and I'm not a Southern Baptist, but yeah. you know, for, the, for the five seminary presidents to come together and all declare with one voice, there's no room for CRT in the gospel. Like They just shut down the conversation. The, the people you're talking about leaving the church, they're saying, how much longer do we have to tolerate this nonsense? We're just going to chase it on our own, I guess. It's, it's just... Well, and, and, and that's why I say you have to believe Genesis 3. Yeah. <laughs> you have to believe. It should not shock you, opposition from within and without the church of strong theological principles. We should, if you truly look at race and poverty in this country and the history of it, you should be shocked when things go right. <laughs> you really should be. That should be evidence of the Holy Spirit being there because it should never go right. If you really believe Genesis 3 and you really understand the history of this country, it should never go right. So I'm kind of goofy like that. I kind of like people go, oh, nobody, church ain't doing anything. It's like, look, if we get 20% of the churches to actually get this and to do something, that's phenomenal Yeah. in the world, in this sinful world that we live in. I'm the opposite of an idealist. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's a realist or whatever, but when I go into a situation and it goes right and people get it, I'm going, praise the Lord. Because if it goes the way of a sinful world, I wouldn't, it, we wouldn't even be talking about this, <laughs> let alone anybody getting it. I think you were mentioning in the book when you were chatting to a pastor, I believe he was from Uganda, and he, yes. kind of, he stood you yes. in, your tracks, in your tracks when he said, I just don't expect my life to go well. Like he was just basically saying. That's exactly where I got that philosophy from. It was the <laughs> eye opener because yeah. he was he was in uh, he was a pastor during the reign of Idi Amin. That's it. Yeah. Which was one of the most brutal dictators out there. Yeah. And so much craziness was happening. He developed a faith in the middle of all that that said, which is to me is just incredible. A lot of what you're saying sounds like uh, Father Gregory Boyle, Bryant Myers, the the World Vision Urban Development Practitioners. Who are a couple of your early influences in this way of thinking? Clearly, the, the man who's had the biggest influence on my life in terms of this way of thinking is John Perkins, who, who founded Christian Community Development Association. I, I've had the privilege of meeting him personally a couple of times, the privilege of serving on the CCDA board. That clearly is the, one of the biggest influences on my life. Because um, he, to me, was someone who was able to combine evangelism and justice in a very strong and biblical way. And, and in fact, he's one of the people who I patterned my life after uh, and, and, who's, and whose shoulders, I would say, I tried to stand upon in, as president CEO of World Impact and in the writing of this book. Because in this book, I have a whole chapter you know, dedicated to CCDA. Yeah. That's not by accident. I'm like, that's, that's 30 years. That's my life, man. You know, um, this is not original to me. So John Perkins, clearly, um, theologically Howard Thurman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned him with MLK. Big influence. Uh, if you've never read the book, Jesus and the Disinherited, you have to read it. It is a primary primer when it comes to, uh, understanding how to do ministry amongst those are oppressed and in poverty. So I would say those are probably my two biggest shapers and influencers of, of how I choose, who I think we should conduct ministry amongst the poor.
as suspected, we've we've run out of time, so we're just going to squeeze in my notorious gauntlet of anxiety questions that I inflict upon everybody. Okay. <laughs> uh, and you can pass or play, Alvin, as you hear them. Um, all right. Uh, the the first one is, you know, almost all of us uh, get triggered in anxiety by the same kinds of people or the same kinds of situations. Like in my life, I'm just a chronic people pleaser. And if I think someone's not happy with me or if I'm in trouble with them, I get anxious. It's just, a, it's going to happen. What would be one or two types of people or triggers that always make you anxious? By far, the biggest trigger is people who, who I don't think I can trust. Folk who I think are being fake or inauthentic Sorry to all the used car salesmen out there, but like the, the the prototypical used car salesman, they'll say anything to you to get what they want out of you. That drives me up a wall. That drives me crazy. And if I suspect you're like that, that's really, really triggering to me. It's very tough. Okay. Uh, another question is we do a lot of focus in this work on how our family of origin shows up in our workplace and our home place, whether we want it to or not. So what would be one attribute that you've inherited from your family of origin that's a real asset in your leadership? And what's one that gets in the way? Well, one is, it might be one and the same, actually, now that you've asked that, but it is just having a, an, an intense mentality of um, being contrarian. Both my parents grew up in, in Jim Crow law, Alabama South. And um, what they instilled in me to never, never be taken advantage of, so to speak, to achieve your goals in spite of the obstacles, which in, which requires a fiery intensity. If you're growing up in a very oppressive system in the state of Alabama, the great and the horrible thing about me is I confront everything. Because as my wife tells me, Honey, sometimes some things don't need confronting. Then you're going to confront that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I remember I when I was getting, you know, interviewed for a ministry job, I had to go through one of those psychological profile type things. I don't know if you've ever been through one of those things. But I remember the guy telling me, he said, Alvin, your personality is if they throw you in a room with 10 guys and turn off the lights and say only one of you is coming out, you're the one who's coming out. Because you're going to be the one who does whatever it takes to get out of that room, right? And so that has its pluses and its minuses. That's a great answer. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Alvin, it's very common for a leader to be the last person in the room that knows when they're not doing well, when they're anxious or when they're struggling. Mm -hmm. Who in your life knows that you're not well before you know? My wife, clearly, personally speaking, my How wife. How does she know? What are the signs uh, you're giving off? Well, first off, she has a cheat code because she's a therapist. Okay. <laughs> but even if she wasn't a therapist, yeah, we've been married for 26 years. She knows me. She knows my ways. She knows what's happening. She knows when I'm anxious and things of that nature. And then professionally work-wise, I'd say my executive team, we, I have a phenomenal executive team. I don't care who your executive team is. Mine is better. I love them and they're great. And we have built a great camaraderie amongst ourselves for them to come to me and say things to me. And, you know, I've been in meetings and they've said stuff to me when I've gotten too intense. You know, won't you go for a walk? You know, <laughs> we need to take a break. Won't we go for a walk? If I don't catch myself, they may say that. Yeah, that's good. And so I would say that that's it's probably that team in terms of ministry wise and professionally is the ones who, who um, give me great self-awareness. A lot of Christian leaders, I think it's really common that we experience a gap between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. So I know a lot of Christian leaders that believe in the love of God. They can even proclaim it powerfully, but they struggle to experience it for themselves. Would there be a gap for you in your belief versus experience with God in any way? Yes, that God is is always working for my good or leading i all i naturally always expect the other shoe to drop out the sky like when something good is happening i'm like okay well this this is like it's all downhill from here yeah what's coming around the corner and um that's why i literally every morning recite psalm 23 mm, okay to try to combat that 
I do two things. I, I recite Psalm 23 and I re- recite Psalm 1. You know, blessed is the man. And, you know, and, and uh, Psalm 23 talks, of, yeah, and, and God talks about living, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want to combat that natural inclination that I have that, uh, oh, man, it's, you know, this is going too well. Something's yeah, going to happen. Ending you know? Exactly. Wow. Uh, in my studies of anxiety, you know, one of the simplest things I've uncovered is that anxiety can't coexist with laughter. It's hard to be mm-hmm. laughing, belly laughing, and anxious. And it also cannot coexist with love. John says, perfect love displaces or casts out. So to that end, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Oh, man, that's a really good question. When do I feel fully and completely loved? I would say with family. I mean, I'm a very boring individual. And one of the best parts of my day is just sitting in the den watching TV with my family. I just love it. It just, I feel, you know, comforted in the conversations that we have and the things that we interact over and things of that nature. That's like a, just a great feeling, just the mundane, you know, enjoying their company and they're enjoying my company, um, which, which collates to, you know, I'm a churchman at heart. Church bleeds throughout that entire book, yeah. right? If you read it. And, I love my small group community. Been going to the same small group forever. You know, love those folk. Um, and just, I've never had a bad small group meeting because we just go and it's just the, the fellowship of, of Jesus Christ just comes out. Praying for another, encouraging one another, going through the scriptures together. So I would say those are two of the things I've, that I do in my life regularly that makes me feel the most love. Great answer. Dr. Sanders, you're the author of the book, Uncommon Church. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for sharing so raw. Uh, I think a, it's just such a neater conversation. So I really appreciate your time and your heart. Thanks very much. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.